0: Do you feel safe? Do you feel safe in your body and in your mind? Or does it feel like your body and mind are constantly spinning with anxiety and dysregulation? That's the case for many, slash, I'd say most of us in 2023, but there's good news. Today's guest says there's a way to change that. They will teach you what the nervous system is, why calming it is so important, and how you can start your journey to mental and emotional safety. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren Legrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative. And this show is meant to give you tools to love, trust, and know yourself enough to claim your right to creativity and pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. Today's guests are Dr. Stephen Porges and his son, Seth Porges. Dr. Porges is a neuroscientist and a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University, where he is the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium. He is professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina and professor emeritus at both the University of Illinois at Chicago and the University of Maryland. He's also the author of several books about the polyvagal theory, which is a theory he originally proposed in 1994. His son, Seth Porges, is a filmmaker, journalist, and television commentator. He produced, wrote, and co-directed the feature documentary, Class Action Park, which premiered as the number one movie on HBO Max in 2020. He's also appeared on numerous television shows and networks, including National Geographic, Discovery, and the History Channel. Together, Seth and Dr. Porges co authored the book, Our Polyvago World, which is out now. I wanted to have them on the show because number one, I've never interviewed a father son duo who collaborated on a creative project, and that's an interesting dynamic to break down. Number two, their book and work provide simple tools to help you access physical, mental, and emotional safety and understand the nervous system in layman's terms. I hope this talk changes the way you think about your brain, body, and your ability to stay calm and gain safety in a world that feels increasingly overwhelming and stressful. From today's chat, you'll learn what exactly the polyvagal theory is, what the vagus nerve is, and how you can start to calm it, how to move through trauma, and why a calm nervous system is imperative to unleashing creatively. Also, before we get into it, we talk a lot about the nervous system in this episode, and we kind of jumped right in, and I wanted to define what we were talking about there because... You kind of just tossed around those words. So let me put on my very small scientific hat for a minute and go through a few terms. The autonomic nervous system. So this nervous system, as I understand it, basically controls the body processes that we don't have to think about consciously in order to do, like digestion, sweating, breathing, shivering, etc. The autonomic nervous system is divided into two parts. There's a parasympathetic nervous system, which is in charge of what they call rest and digest responses, and the sympathetic nervous system, which drives the fight, flight, and freeze responses to stressful situations. Okay, hopefully that made any sense. Now, here they are, Dr. Stephen Porges and Seth Porges. I am so happy that you're both here, Seth and Steven. It seems like it would be pretty impossible to fully unleash creatively without an understanding of our polyvagal world, so I cannot wait to get into it. But before we get into the heavy science here, I'd like to get into the creativity and the beauty of making something with somebody that we love. I'm really curious how the idea for this book came about, and how you two decided to work together.
1: My dad here, Dr. Porges, uh, we don't just share a last name by coincidence. He, he is my father. You know, he, he, of course, was the originator of polyvagal theory and has written many books himself about the topic. But it's pretty evident to, I think, anybody who's tried to read them, including me, that those books aren't uh, for humans. They're, you know, incredibly opaque, academic, impenetrable, very, very difficult to understand. And that was a shame. Because the information in it is so useful, so pertinent to all of our lives, just incredibly important. And it really was apparent to me that, you know, th- this was work in need of translation. It was work in need of a way of explaining it that normal people would understand. And just through dinner table osmosis i had kind of picked up a, a somewhat of an understanding of it and actually had been kind of giving lectures on the topic of polyvagal theory in a way that was really designed to make it understandable to normal people and there was uh, actually you know i got some pretty great response from a video of one of them went somewhat viral and it was really just reading the comments on that video that was like, we need to turn this into a book. So that that's really how it began. So you know, I approached my father and I was like, hey, let's do this. And you know, it's something we'd sort of talked about before, but it was just a matter of finding the time for both of us to say, All right, now's the time. Let's do it. And it just felt right. Well, to put
2: it from my perspective, you have to view it from an academic. For academics, the most frustrating thing is the uh barrier or boundary between your ideas and the community you want to impact on. So it was tremendous frustration for me not being able to have a voice that could communicate to others. So what I may think of as being very simple, others you know may not be able to understand. Uh, I may be thinking in a different way because there's decades of work underneath the, my research. And as a father, now we got to flip it from the scientist to the father. The scientist, academic says, love to have someone write this with me. Now, with a, as a father, a father really loves to see the creativity of his children. He doesn't really want to tell his child what to do. I mean, so telling Seth, uh, I want to take your skills, your talents, your creativity, your brilliance, and funnel it through uh, the ideas that I spent my lifetime working, I just would never do. So I would basically sit back and. Watch Seth and his creativity write his his work, create movies, and have a great smile on my face in terms of uh, like seeing his creativity and being extraordinarily proud. So it wasn't within, I would say, my psychological makeup to say, hey, Seth, I really, really need your help to make this into a palatable narrative for people to read. And so I was very welcoming when Seth said he wanted to do this. I had a big smile on my face.
0: Well, you can feel that throughout the book because it's actually, I was shocked at how much fun it is to read. I mean, I found myself smiling a lot reading the book, which I thought it was going to be, even though I knew, you know, Seth, you have such an incredible storytelling background. I was like, well, this seems like it's like a really heavy subject. And you did such a great way of infusing story, fun, and your connection into the book. And I'm curious from that point of view, what role did you each play in the creative process? How did you come together?
1: Before we answer that, I want to kind of go back to what you're saying there, because I think that's actually a really, really important point. You know, this is a book where the word trauma is on the cover, right? Yeah. There's just like innately heavy stuff that's going to be covered in this book. But I think both my father and I realized that a lot of books out there about trauma are actually really hard for traumatized people to read. They're triggering, they're heavy, they're not fun. And, you know, at some point, you just kind of put it down. And the goal we really had was to find a way of explaining this stuff and getting this information across in a way that, that you could read it and not feel bad at the same time. That was readable, that was relatable, that kind of infused. Because this isn't a sad story and it's hard. It's a story of, of humanity. It's a story of hope. It's sort of optimism. It's a story of how we can be these altruistic, creative, generous, wonderful social creatures. And that's a good story. That's a positive story. And all of these systems in our body that make us feel bad, those systems are there for good reason. They're there to keep us alive at the end of the day. This doesn't need to be a hard story to tell, the story of the body, the story of trauma, the story of these things. And so really understanding how can we tell the story in a way that's affirming, in a way that even if you see your own experiences, maybe they're heavy or negative experiences, you can... Smile at times. You can laugh at times. You can realize that you know what. Maybe you're stronger for having got through it. Maybe these these experiences are kind of what made you. And really, just understanding the complexity of the human spirit. Man, that sounds so hokey. Wow. Excuse no,
0: me. No, but you you wrote it with a deep amount of compassion. Like yeah. I felt your compassion for me, the reader when I was reading it. I mean, there was so much like, hey, you're not crazy. These things are actually happening. The things that you've been feeling your whole life that you couldn't really put your finger on what that was, that was something that was living inside you that we were literally built with. And here, now I'm giving you the tools to figure out what it is and what to do with it.
1: And feeling heard in that sense is it's an awakening experience and it's, it's a joyful experience at times for people because a lot of the problems that come from from trauma is people unable to understand what's happening to them the mystery that leads to a sense of shame or guilt or feeling that what they're experiencing is abnormal that there's something wrong with them and being told that like no this is actually normal like everything you're feeling is normal Allows you to approach these things with less loaded emotions, truthfully, and the ability to deal with them for what they are, which is the natural response to whatever it is you went through.
0: Yeah. Well, that really came across.
1: Yeah.
2: I'd like to kind of add to this that I'm not a therapist, but I was a scientist who was very welcomed into the therapeutic world. In fact, people used to say I was a researcher with a heart, of like heart of a therapist, but the real issue was I wasn't contaminated like many therapists were with this, basically passionate desire to fix the damage that they saw. I entered it with curiosity, and in a sense, if in reading the book, you enter your own feelings with the same type of curiosity. You start living a life of wonderment about what your body does. What I often say when I'm on stage with my friends who are uh, you know very well-known therapists. I basically say it's not my day job. You know, I'm up here because of my curiosity of deconstructing and I'm learning from you and I'm learning from the clients. And I don't have the internalized, uh, let's say, passion that I need to get out there and fix things because I'm really taking a different perspective. I'm saying when we understand how our body works. Our body has the capacity literally to fix itself. So I start talking about the capacities that we have, that we really can only touch those capacities when we give up our defenses, give up our hypervigilance. And anyone who has had a trauma history knows that they've been retuned to be more hypersensitive, hypervigilant, in danger all the time. So I'm just saying we have a core that we can really touch and we can explain it.
0: Okay, so let's get into a little bit of that core here, the polyvagal world. By the way, I just have to say, Stephen, Dr. Porges, like, you were so ahead of your time in 1994. Why do you think the world seems ready to hear this now?
2: Well, I'm not sure they're ready to hear it. Okay, so...
0: (laughs) Well, I keep hearing people talk about it, though. Like, past three years, people are finally getting into the body and out of the head.
2: Okay, they start attributing executive function and decision-making to the vagus, and they kind of miss the important part of the dynamic communication between the brain and the body. So trauma, we use terms like it's locked in the body. But in reality, it's locked in the system that is monitoring the body, which is really located in our brainstem. So we literally have a surveillance system, and we need to think more dynamically, as opposed to we have injured our vagus. The vagus is a wire. So even though I'm really, you know, I not only was I talking about the vagus in 1994, I was talking about it in 1975. I mean, I really want to go back. And I was talking about it as a system that when it gets disrupted, it's really... The window into feeling stressed or anxious is telling you that you've disrupted your homeostatic function. So if I were to summarize this journey, I'd say throw out words like stress, throw out words like anxiety, ask a different question. Is my physiology supporting safety or threat? And it's very simple for people who are anxious or feel stressed out. Their body is supporting. It's in a state of defense. Now, who who are we when we are safe enough to be who we really are? Now, for many people, and let's say like your life is life of performing, how vigilant are you? How aware are you of being evaluated with your performance? Or how do you feel in terms of the ability to communicate, to be accessible while being performing? And this is something that I started to learn along this journey, that what the humans want, what other people want, and what I want, and what you want, is the degree of accessibility with another, because that creates this co-regulation or bi-directional communication between people so we're a species that evolved with neural mechanisms to literally calm our physiology to support health growth and restoration through sociality that's who we are we're a social species
1: now now lauren i'm going to actually answer your question which is why why in the past you said three years are people talking about this stuff a lot more i think it's pretty obvious like the past three years have been hell for a lot of people you know a lot of people have endured anxiety stress and trauma like never before and whereas before i think there was this faulty assumption by many people that trauma was this thing that only impacted a small number of people who had very specific experiences they thought it might be only the domain of assault survivors or war veterans or the like i think people are now beginning to realize that the world itself is capable of traumatizing us just by virtue of being alive in it you know that's what it means to survive a global pandemic and to deal with all this stuff plus the isolation and everything else that kind of came from the darkest days of the pandemic. I think that's really a big thing. Plus, honestly, social media. Like, people talk about the Vegas nerve all the time on social media these days, and that just wasn't a thing several years back. People talk about ways to hack the Vegas as a way of calming yourself or healing yourself. And I think all that's well and good, but as we write in the book, pour cold water in your face, do all that kind of stuff, whatever it is. By the end of the day, the best, simplest, most efficient way of activating, hacking, whatever, your Vegas for health, growth, happiness, restoration, creativity, all of these things is really, really simple. And that is just be around people who make you feel safe and socialize. Polyvagal theory posits that positive, healthful, safe socialization itself, being around loved ones, being around friends, is itself a vagal trigger, is itself a powerful tool in our body's toolkit for keeping us sane, for keeping us happy, for keeping us healthy. And I think people being deprived, truly isolated, deprived of socialization in a way that many of us have never experienced before, I think expose people for the very first time, many people to the power of it. It's one of those things you don't miss it till it's gone, right? And you begin to realize you're going crazy without this. And I think that is a huge, huge reason that people are now paying attention to the vagus nerve in a way they weren't before. The key point in my personal journey, and that is what I've
2: learned about being a human from those who have experienced trauma, because they've taught me what was lost And what they have taught me is that the ability to feel safe in proximity of another, literally to be held in the arms of another, is what's taken away from them, because the proximity becomes a signal of threat, and their body can't tolerate being touched. But they have taught me what it is that is really the essence of being a human, and it's the sociality, as Seth was elaborating
0: on. Yeah, and before we go any further, just for the listener because they may have no understanding of these things. I mean, yes, we're seeing it <laughs> pop up a lot on we socials. we off the
1: defense here. <laughs> we're going right yeah, in.
0: But can we just define clearly like what is the vagus nerve for somebody listening who doesn't know?
1: And also let's let's give like the dead simple explanation of what polyvagal theory is. Yeah, I think that'd it's be something great. that people think is is like super complex, super difficult to understand. And you can go as deep as you want, like down this rabbit hole. It's a deep rabbit hole, people. But, you know, we begin this book, I think on like page one, with like, all right, throw away the rest of the book. Here's all you need to know. What is polyvagal theory? It is the idea that how safe we feel is incredibly important when it comes to our health and happiness, both physical and mental, period. We have something in our body called the autonomic nervous system. Autonomic, basically meaning automatic. It's all of the bodily functions we don't consciously control. And those functions, how our organs operate, how our senses work, how everything in our our heart beats, our lungs, our sweat glands, our livers, all those things happen without us consciously thinking about it. Consciousness operates a very, 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 very small part of our body's functions. Otherwise, if you had to think about every time your heart beat, couldn't go to sleep without your heart stopping, right? Like we need this autopilot system. But an autopilot system operates differently under different circumstances because when you are threatened, we've all heard of things like fight or flight, your body needs to do one thing whereas when you're safe and a lot peaceful, it needs to do another. And it really comes down to either short-term survival or long-term health. Your body has limited resources, especially back in the Stone Age when calories were scarce, right? It can't do both. It's either short-term survival or long-term health. And if your body is constantly in a state of short-term survival, it cannot give resources to long-term health. Not only that, it can't give resources to Advanced cranial functions, creativity, uh, sociability, all of these sorts of things. Because the only priority then is keeping you alive. Now, of course, in this world that is incredibly stressful, filled with vibrating phones and news anchors yelling at us and news alerts and bosses and spreadsheets and traffic and horns and, and noise and ple- whatever it is, right? All of those things, those, those circuits that evolve for short-term survival are oftentimes being activated all the time what does that do to us, right? That's the big question here. Now, they actually answer your question. What is the vagus nerve? It is a nerve that begins in your brainstem and it goes down to your gut. And in doing so, it passes through just about every organ and bodily system in your entire body. It is the conductor that allows your body to act like a symphony. So when you are in a state of safety or a state of threat, All of your bodily systems can act in coordination with each other so that when you're running for your life, it's not just like your heart's doing one thing and your lungs are doing another and your sweat glands are doing another. They're all working to that shared goal of your survival. It is what gives us an autonomic, meaning automatic nervous system. The vagus is the conductor that causes our body to shift between these states, we'll call them physiological states, autonomic states, so that when you are feeling safe, your entire body acts one way towards long-term health, growth, and restoration. When you're feeling threatened, your body, your entire body, acts towards immediate survival. The vagus nerve is the baton, the conductor is waving in the air that keeps your entire body running in synchrony. But more than that, actually activating this vagus nerve itself is healing. It is a neural break. It is what causes us and allows our body to slow down and to feel safe. And when it is activated through safety, there's different the word polyvagal implies more than one vagal branch. There is, but we'll just kind of talk about the branch associated with safety right now. The part of the brainstem it plugs into, it's the same part that the cranial nerves that are associated with social behavior plug into. The trigeminal nerve, the facial nerve, the glossopharyngeal nerve, the accessory nerve. These are the cranial nerves that operate our facial muscles, our voice, our larynx, all these things that allow us to be social beings so that when we feel safe, the parts of our body that allow us to be social turn on. And when we feel threatened, they turn off. That's what the Vegas is.
0: Bam, mic drop.
1: <laughs> See, this is
2: why you have brilliant sons. You just sit back and smile. The interesting part of the evolutionary journey from, uh, I would say, asocial reptiles to what became the social mammals, occurred over 200 million years ago, is a migration of, in the brainstem of the neurons that basically calm our heart, slow us up. And they literally got intertwined in the brainstem and the ventral area that regulate the muscles of the face and head. And this enabled sucking, swallowing, breathing, and vocalizing to be coordinated. So it becomes so interesting the fact that ingestive behaviors are used the same neural circuits that sociality does. And we can see even in very young infants, Ingestion is calming up to a point when they get a little slightly older, social behavior
1: becomes more important. So, ingestion means eating, which is why we tend to associate meals with social times. It's why we go out to dinner with friends and loved ones. It's why food is always there at a party. This goes back to our basic evolutionary history.
0: Beautiful. So, okay, can I ask a question about that is related to ingestion? I mean, if somebody has a lot of gut issues, which I historically and even currently have had and have, is that directly connected to the vagus nerve? And can that be helped by vagus nerve stimulation?
1: One of the things polyvagal theory teaches us is how feeling safe, traumatized, transforms our physiology. Trauma is not merely psychological. It is physiological as well. It transforms how every single Feeling unsafe and what is being traumatized, but having sort of the goalposts of what makes us feel safe moved, so that perhaps we often or even always feel unsafe, that transforms how our body functions. It transforms how our senses operate. And one of the magic tricks that I like to do if somebody tells me they have a a history of trauma is I ask them two questions. I ask them, has your hearing changed and has your digestion changed? And most of them both say yes to one or the other, and also, how did you know that? It's because to them, these things were mysterious. They felt abnormal. They felt weird. And there's nothing scarier than something that feels abnormal, weird, and mysterious, right? And I explained to them, well, you're hearing, as he was Dr. Porges was sort of talking about there, our hearing, our ability to hear is tied to our physiological state, whether we feel safe or threatened. When we feel safe, we have middle ear muscles that change positions so they can filter the sound of human speech from a loud environment. If you're at a bar, I can have a conversation with you. Even if it's pretty loud, you can pull out human voice. The sound of human speech is special to our brains, but only when we feel safe. Because when we feel safe, our bodies are primed for socialization. They're primed to pick out these words. When you feel threatened, middle ear muscles change position, affects the tautness of the eardrum. This is a physiological shift that occurs. It's not magic. It's not witchcraft. It's a physiological shift that occurs. And so instead of picking up the middle frequencies of human voice, we're now tuned to pick up ultra-low frequencies of predators, right? Because we're on alert now. Digestion, similarly. When we are feeling safe, our bodies can properly digest. Health, growth, restoration, digestion is a big part of that. When we feel threatened or severely traumatized, our digestion and our ability to properly handle those bodily functions is impacted. And I think it would posit, I'm, you know, I'm not a clinician. I hesitate to always give people any sort of actual advice about anything, (laughs) you know, experiences may vary, but oftentimes we look at issues like that and we treat them as symptoms. We say, here's something to deal with your digestion, your hearing, your whatever it might be. When in fact, a lot of those things, what they are symptoms of perhaps is a nervous system stuck in a state of feeling unsafe in which the entire physiology perhaps is shifted. And that, I think, gives us – I think the polyvagal framing of questions related to these things is less about the individual symptom and more how can we make the entire body feel safe and see what magic sort of occurs from there. And perhaps, maybe not for everybody, but for some people, there might be improvements in digestion.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting, and you touch on some of these things in the book. And I also just want to thank you for how much compassion you have for people who have survived trauma because it's apparent throughout the entire book. You always go back to that and it's very healing to read. But like for me, this started in school. In second grade, I had a teacher that was, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if the word would be abusive, but she definitely wasn't good for me and like humiliated me in front of the class, made me feel stupid. And I remember sitting in like the bottom of my locker with my mom before school started being like, my stomach hurts. And that's when I first started noticing it. And then years later, I was in a toxic job situation and it really flared up. So I think that was like a re-trigger of the trauma. And I kind of ever since then, it's never really gone away, even though I've since left there and I'm in a much better place. But it's is—it's interesting.
1: So some of the presentations Dr. Porges used to give, he had been sent drawings from mostly young people who had experienced trauma, kind of asked to draw their trauma. Where does it manifest in their bodies? And it's so telling when they do it because you just see so, Like the stomach, the gut, that's where they say it kind of lives almost, right? Is in there. And, and you can just see it in the way they draw themselves, these self-portraits of themselves and their, and their trauma. It's very difficult for people to logically understand that the trauma is, changes our physiology. It changes our body, right? But once you begin to understand that it's freeing. It allows us to view these things not as these mysteries that are hanging over us, but as the natural response to something we have endured and that millions and millions of other people have endured as well.
2: So let me just make a comment, because we need to emphasize that trauma is not the event. Trauma is the individual's response. So if we go to your own experience in school, you were probably told, well, other children go get by, it doesn't bother them. So you start to take responsibility for the feelings that your body were telling you were really uh, potently disruptive. And that's abusive. You know, we don't have to say the teacher was. That's where the word neuroception comes in, because it's a physiological detection of threat. It doesn't mean that you were truly threatened by something that society would say someone's trying to injure you. It's that your nervous system interpreted as bodily threat. And you then went into a
1: physiology of self-protection. And we have to really change our view. This is really important because I think we are very judgy oftentimes of people's experiences and what we constitute as traumatizing or worthy of using the T word trauma or whatever it might be. And, you know, I've heard people out there dismissively say that unless, you know, you were in war you don't have trauma, right? And that's just a fundamental mischaracterization of what trauma is. Trauma is not the event itself, is how our nervous system responds to it and the changes that our body that occur from that nervous system response. And it's different for everybody. Everybody has an innate level of resilience, different resilience, right? And that resilience can change over time. And each of us handles, you and I can be in a car accident together and one of us could walk away without really any problems. The other could dramatically change their life and their ability to handle stress forever. And it's really important for us to, first of all, get over this idea that different experiences are worthy of being characterized as trauma or not. It has nothing to do with that. It all has to do with how our body responds to it. And everybody's body responds differently to those things. And that's so important for people to understand.
0: What I wanted to bring up was there's this question you talk about a lot in the book, which is the differentiation between how safe do we feel versus how safe are we? Why is that important?
1: Because our nervous system has no idea how safe we actually are, right? Lightning can strike me at any moment. A car can come out of nowhere and hit me at any moment. Up until that moment, my nervous system is not taking that into its algorithm, not taking into account. What our nervous system does do is it uses this process Dr. Porges was just talking about called neuroception, which is sort of like imagine invisible antennae feeling around the world, seeking signs of safety, seeking signs of danger, using that information to transform our body so as to best survive any given thing in a given moment in a given scenario and it takes all the information it takes our past experiences all these things impact how our body responds to the world around us and whether we are tuned to safety tuned to threat and so trauma does is it retunes retunes that it retunes that and it has nothing to do with how safe we actually are that's not to be dismissive of true safety matter
2: What you described, Lauren, was literally uh, being humiliated as a child and the body's reaction to that. It's actually a common theme where people get really a lot of the symptoms of PTSD from, let's say, workplace humiliation. Now, what it's really telling me And tell, and what you learn from your own experiences that your body interpreted that experience as life threatening. And we have to understand that the nervous system, which is, is making a decision. And these decisions are not made in this high cortical area, which is how we're supposed to get out of it. That doesn't mean anything. Get out of it, grow up. It's really in the brainstem level. It's a foundational survival reaction. Your body detected life threat and you had the appropriate response now the real issue is once you understand that how do you now deal with it so what would be the appropriate response the appropriate response is to in a sense not build strong associations between the classroom and those feelings so that you can go into the classroom By the way, school refusal is quite common amongst young children. And of course, a parent's perspective, and I was, I still am a parent. The idea is you want your children to say, oh, that's not important. You want to say to them, go through it. Or we want to say, just toughen up and you'll, you'll get over it. And I'm not sure, actually, I know that's not the right way. I think we need to have a better understanding of what those features are that are triggering the nervous systems of our children.
1: Yeah, and also Lauren, you know, this is incredibly important too because many of the features of the society around us that purport to keep us safe may make us feel unsafe and really have an impact on us. You know, if you are a kid going to school and you're being passed through metal detectors and there's police around with guns and all these things, you're you're signaling to the nervous system this is not a safe place to be and that's going to have an impact. You know, and we live in a world that is sort of i think dismissive of feelings oftentimes, often literally so, feelings that matter. Truth actually does. It really, really does. And a lot of the the systems out there that purport to keep us safe make us feel unsafe. The more cynically minded among us might realize that oftentimes that's intentional because when we feel unsafe, we act differently. And sometimes the way we act benefits certain people. If you're scared and you're constantly looking at social media because you're doom scrolling, well, somebody's making money off that. We are incredibly engaged in content when we feel afraid, when we feel anger when you feel outraged. And for media companies and social media companies that all they care about is engagement, well, the algorithm is really just deciding what it's gonna show you based on what's engaging. It's gonna show us stuff that makes you scared. Basically, piecework. So the,
2: the notion was that if you motivate a person, you make them scared enough or hungry enough. And in, in basic studies, research or motivation with animal studies, you basically don't feed them. So they're hungry and that creates the motivation. And if they're highly motivated, they're more productive. But what they really meant was the productivity was greater activity, more lever pressing. Now, in the world that we're in, lever pressing doesn't solve complex problems. To solve complex problems, we need to access higher brain structures, cortical processes. We need to be able to think, to create, and to dream literally. And that requires a physiology that's not in the state of threat, because the state of threat limits accessibility to certain cortical areas.
0: So, okay, let's say somebody, or you could, we can use me for an example. Like, I have this trauma from a few different experiences in my life. What do I do about it? I mean, you give great examples in the book, but I'd love to share some with the listeners.
1: Dr. Porges, you're the doctor. <laughs>
0: yes, please, doctor, fix me. <laughs>
2: The first step along a journey of self-healing is an awareness of your bodily responses. So that's step number one. And it is not to interpret, but to experience. So we often have a reaction and then we try to deal with it. So like I'm stressed or you you made me angry, as opposed to my body's in a state of threat. And you now try to kind of experience it with wonderment. So it's not necessarily an easy journey, but the journey is to place some space between the reaction, the actual effect of the stimulus and the behavior that you have. I call this a journey of re-embodiment, coming back into your body, because also linked with a lot of the trauma histories and disruptions is a degree of numbness. Now, numbness is a psychological term we use about not feeling our body, but really there's an underlying physiology, and that physiology is that we're turning off the communication, the feedback loops between the organs of our body and our brain. And that's why we start getting all these, quote, psychosomatic disorders. Those psychosomatic disorders, which now are called functional disorders or medically unexplained symptoms, are because you can't get a biopsy or an assessment of an organ that will confirm the discomfort. It's really at the level of the nervous system which will precede the actual damage to the organ. So the nervous system is regulating that organ in a maladaptive way that can literally uh, not allow that organ to self-heal, to replenish itself, and to be healthy. And that's the world we're in. We're in a world which is literally 24-7 evaluation. And we see the consequences not merely in this fear and inability to connect with other people and the fear that others are going to exploit us, but we see simple things like sleep disorders, irritable bowel syndrome, eating disorders, basically dependence on social media or smartphones, we feel that if we don't keep connected, we're going to miss out on, we'll be evaluated. I think this whole issue is what is evaluation? Evaluation is what other people think of us, but evaluation is going to a physician's office and getting a quota test. And how do we feel about getting tests? We feel the same thing. We feel that same uncertainty of Doing a final exam, we take exams at school. So everything in our world, or I should say everything, so much of it, the work environment, the medical environment, the educational environment, is all about evaluation. And evaluation is a simple trigger to a nervous system. It's a trigger of threat. Now, it's not that evaluation is bad. It's just that we need some downtime from evaluation. So we need safety. We need time to co-regulate with trusted other individuals. And many people have no one that they can co-regulate with.
0: Can we define that, co-regulation? Because people throw that word around a lot, and I feel like I don't really understand what it is.
1: Co-regulation is sort of the bi-directional way in which we both make other people feel safe in doing so, heal them, and they do that to us as well. You know, if I'm with a loved one, or even just with a pet, right, who makes me feel safe, a biological process occurs in which our bodies are able to shut down into a state of safety so that they can heal together. This is so, so, so immensely important to our health. This is why people with, you know, almost a million studies over the years have shown that people's strong social support networks do better through virtually every health condition you can imagine, mental and physical. This is why people who have dogs live longer than those without dogs.
2: You're not going to fix it by prescribing more contact with people or dogs or cats because it's not the event. You have to be accessible to the animal, yet be responsive back, likewise with other people. So our culture is so much about quantifying what's necessary to fix without truly understanding the process. So your question about what is co-regulation is really asking what is the process. The process is witnessing another in a way where you're not demanding, you're supporting the other. Now, when you have close friends or you have your own child or you have your own pet, you intuitively understand that your role is very simple. You're there to signal the other that they're safe enough not to be in a state of threat. And when they move out of that, they have smiles or dogs' faces will change or cats will play with you and come to you, or your your son will talk to you. You know, it's all these same types of things. But if you are always reprimanding and saying, did you get a haircut or you should look like this, you should do this, you should say this, uh, what happens to the quality of the interaction? Because the interaction now carries on this whole uh, mask of being evaluated. And what you want are a degree, or at least some interactions that are not evaluative. And so I really start using the term to witness another or hold the space with another.
0: That was a great description of it. So it really comes down to safety and witnessing, not trying to fix. Right.
2: Now, what are the cues of safety? You see, this is where we really get down to because otherwise we will prescribe people to sit next to another person and their faces are going to be like that. They'll be dissociative or they'll be on their iPhones. And the answer is that's not going to be helpful at all. The issue is the true sense of what is accessibility. Accessibility is in terms of our facial expressivity, in terms of the intonation of our voice. It has a lot to do with whether we are listening to another person, whether we grimace or we kind of are there in their space. And I think it's really a journey of learning how to be compassionate with another as opposed to literally running on the power and the strength of our empathic reactions to other people's pain, which often is a threat to us. So when we think empathy is this wonderful attribute. Yeah, it's a good attribute, but we have to, in a sense, process our own empathy before it turns into a reaction to the person who is in pain. So it really means that if we're there trying to support someone who has been injured, we have to realize that our bodies may react to their injury. And so we have to process that, take that deep breath, and literally become that adult in the space and put the hand out to hold their hand. And there's a real set of issues. We really are not very good at that. We start yelling at people who are in pain and telling them to get over it and basically get some self-control. So the part that when you brought up the question of co-regulation, it really has to be contrasted with self-regulation. And in terms of the history of parenting, it was always about the child developing self-regulation. And if you co-regulate, meaning support, like we're talking, you'd spoil a child. But in reality, the co-regulation built a predictability of someone being there, being safe. And now the visual memory of being held in the arms of a loved one was what was now used to enable self-regulation. So when people who are in surgeries or other traumatic situations, often they carry with them a visualization of safety and love with with a trusted other person.
0: Beautiful. And in the book, you say the more threatened our nervous system feels, the more primitive our response. Can you go into this? I think that's involved with the green light, yellow light, and red light, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. One of the things that polyvagal theory discusses is how we respond to threats basically occurs through hierarchical reverse evolutionary order. So say you come into contact with some mysterious being on the horizon. Your body doesn't know what it is. Your body has to use its neuroception to very quickly scan and instantly decide, is this thing a safe or a threat? And transform your physiology to meet the occasion. But the order in which that sort of occurs is kind of like a flowchart, where first it kind of assumes that what you're coming in contact with is safe. Shifts your body, we call it the green state, but you know, the state of safety. We call it the green state in the book that allows us to be sociable, allows us to be healthful, allows us to potentially, you know, deal with things with diplomacy, friendliness, share a meal, all that sort of stuff. And those functions, those social functions, are only present in modern mammals. You're basically tapping into uniquely mammalian sociability systems when you are in a state of safety. When you're in a state of threat, your body accesses a different, more primitive, meaning it existed in more ancient evolutionary times system that help deal with threat. This we call you know, our fight or flight system, our sympathetic nervous system. In the book, we call it the yellow system.
0: I loved it. It was great for the layman's like me. <laughs>
1: yes. And then if you co- let's just say your body is decided, whatever you're coming in contact with isn't just a threat, but a severely like life threatening scenario in which you- death might actually occur. Oftentimes, when we encounter such severe duress, we don't actually mobilize and activate. We don't fight or flight. We actually, we freeze, we shut down, we dissociate. And this is really important. I think more people are beginning to understand this. But until recently, this wasn't really acknowledged. And so you have legal systems, jurors, media, judgmental peers, who all sort of assume that if somebody was was severely threatened, they would have activated. There'd be a sign of a struggle, for example. When people freeze or shut down, uh, their narrative is often doubted, and they begin to doubt their narrative themselves, because they wonder, why didn't I fight back? Why did I freeze? And this is a completely natural response. It's also, as I said, a completely ancient response. This goes back to the very earliest vertebrates. This is how uh, many reptiles respond to threats. They actually freeze and play dead. And this is the same system that occurs in humans, often when they're under severe duress and they freeze, faint, or shut down.
2: Some of the symptoms that people have is they literally under under threat may literally become amnesic and not even know where they are. That may be a, in a sense Initial ones, they may pass out and subsequently, because a lot of people have repeated abuse experiences and initial ones, their bodies may literally totally shut down. They might defecate or urinate and the body may do that, but subsequently they may just associate with their mind adaptively moves them to someplace else while not threatening their body's survival.
0: So I was going to say with the yellow one, like, for instance, there have been many occasions when I'm talking to someone who I don't feel safe with. They're not maybe like going to physically threaten me, but I don't feel like I have emotional safety with the person. And I feel my whole body get tight. My voice gets more monotone. My jaw clenches up. Sometimes my teeth will even start chattering. Would that be the yellow phase?
1: Often, I mean, so the yellow state, I think the easy way to think about it is just mobilization. If you're feeling mobilized, that's probably the yellow state. If you're feeling shutting down, that could perhaps be the red, and it could be a little bit of both.
2: There are two parts going on with what you described. The yellow is a resource. So it can literally, if the green, meaning our social engagement system is still there, we can mobilize, we call that dancing and playing. So we can see people's faces, exuberance, and they run, but they're not pulling knives or trying to kill someone else. But what you described was a retraction of the social engagement system, which changes the neuromuscular control of the face. What you described is a reality in a sense not having this calming ventral vagus and its linkage with all those neuromuscular control of those uh, areas of the face. And so that was retracted and the sympathetic nervous system was on as well. When you retract the social engagement system, what really happens is that you you give permission for the sympathetic nervous system to just press the metal to the floor. Basically get you out of there quickly. So you're when you were in that or felt uncomfortable with the person, you pulled back the social engagement and the ventral vagus, and you were now poised that, to get energy out of your body if you needed to get out of that room quickly.
0: Mm, okay, that makes sense.
2: Well, I would actually ask you, did you have visualizations of getting out of places when you felt that way?
0: Yeah. I mean, I definitely didn't want to be there. I was definitely like not happy to be there and just felt very much like I just couldn't be myself. That's how I would have put it in the past.
2: Yeah. So in a polyvagal concept, you took away your newer circuits that really are the social circuits, the charming circuits, the circuits that enable you to be creative and to be engaging, and you're now left being vulnerable. And that's where you were. You're left feeling vulnerable. Your body was telling you a lot.
0: Yeah, I think my body talks. What I learned from reading your book is my body has always been communicating with me. I've just often ignored it or hoped it would go away. (laughs) I don't want my body to go away, but the symptoms.
2: Yeah, but that's part of the culture. The culture says, forget it. Don't pay attention to it. And then you start seeing people having... All these types of disorders, especially as they get older, because when you're young, there's a lot of vitality, a lot of flexibility. But as my good friend Bessel van der said, the body keeps the score. So over time, there's a total retuning and there's literally a wear and tear of these systems.
0: I mean, there's so much more to get into. I feel like we've been together for three minutes. Overall, people just need to get your book because it is a Bible for all these things. This was like a little drop. The book is the buffet. I do want to ask, because we only have a couple more minutes here, about the connection between all of what we're talking about in creativity because you do go into that in a few different ways in the book. Theater, music. Can we speak to some of these things? What is the connection between this and creativity?
1: It's just so simple. When we feel safe and only when we feel safe, Are we able to access, fully access the parts of our brain that allow us to be creative? The end. That's all you got to know. And so that begs then the next questions. What are things that make us feel safe? That could be aesthetics. That could be being around people who make us feel safe. That could be just curating our environment. But really paying attention and understanding that if you want to be creative, you should also make sure that you feel safe.
0: Doctor, anything to add?
2: Well, I'm, I'm a student when Seth talks, so the other part, is, see, I'd push it even into the aspects of spirituality, so I would go even further in saying that people think that spirituality can be driven by fear, you know, that, that you're fearful, and that is spirituality. Polyvagal theory says there's actually a bifurcation in what you define as spirituality, a fear-based spirituality, which is really, is a separation between one and everything else. But a a spirituality that comes from safety is a spirituality of connectedness. So connectedness with everything living, everything on the planet. And, you know, we talk about that as being woo-woo or kinky stuff, but it's how our nervous system functions. When we feel safe, we're compassionate, we're benevolent, and we're more generous And we're more open to variations, I would say, diversity on all dimensions. So we become a curious species and not a self-protecting species. So the creativity, the spirituality have a lot to do with whether we're like this or we're like this.
0: And just for the listeners, what Dr. Porges was doing was he was opening his arms and saying like this, or then closing his arms and putting them over his chest and really tightening up and saying, or like this when he was describing those two different ways of being.
2: I like to talk about this being accessibility, but if you carry a trauma history with you, this is not accessibility, this is vulnerability. So we have to start looking at the people who don't feel comfortable with being creative or giving up because it's vulnerability to them. And so they... They try to do repeated types of behaviors, predictability. Our nervous system interprets predictability as safety. So even though it may be abusive, it's predictive. But something that is not predictive to a nervous system that has been injured, they don't want to go there. It's too much of a challenge, too uncertain for them. Mm. There's another part. Remember that this is my ventral part of my body. And when I'm in, quote, a ventral vagal state, Where am I? I am open in my ventral side of my body. Now, if you have a dog or a cat and watch them when they go on their back, they're telling you what state they're in. If they are welcoming you to rub their bellies, which is the ventral side. Now, for mammals, especially social mammals, the ventral side is a sign of vulnerability. It's, you know, so the back, uh, we harden with our backs, we hunker down. It's metaphorically, but it's also a reality. This is Mm. our vulnerable side of being injured.
0: And ventral is front and dorsal is back. Yeah. Okay, final question, you guys. And again, I had, I'm not kidding you, like 10 pages of questions. (laughs) But maybe you'll come back sometime. That would be great.
1: Anytime.
0: I love the father-son dynamic too. Thank you both for coming on. This was so, so beautiful to see. Can we just... Give the listener a tool of breathing. You talk a lot in the book about breathing, about its ability to make us feel safe. What would be your best breathing tool to give someone?
1: Yeah, I, I before we do that, I think it's important for people to understand why breathing calms us down. Cause we we you know, you know, our, our modern world is filled with people talking about breathing and slow breathing. It's like built into the Apple Watch now. That's the point we've reached. But I think very few people understand what's going on and why. And it's really, really, really simple and logical. And I think it's really important to understand because if you're somebody who might be dismissive of the power of breathing because you're like not into yoga or something, it's important to understand, I think on a physiological level, what's happening, why this works, and why it's important. Basically, again, our autonomic, meaning automatic nervous system, controls most of our bodily functions, all that stuff we don't consciously control, like our heart, all that kind of stuff. It also controls our breathing. But breathing is unique In that it is the rare autonomic function that is both controlled automatically, but also something we can consciously take control of. If I don't think about my breathing, I continue to breathe. If I choose to think about my breathing, I can hold my breath. I can breathe out slowly. I can do almost anything I want. I can play an instrument. I can do all sorts of cool things. And that fact that it is an autonomic function that we can consciously control is what makes it so powerful. Because our autonomic nervous system acts in synchrony. When our heart beats fast, everything else kind of speeds up with it. So by slowing down our breathing, we are basically telling our body that we're not actually running for our life. And that signal of safety bounces up and down our entire body, through our vagus nerve, and slows down the entire body, including our heart. So to answer your question, what can you do for breathing? Breathe slower, particularly exhalations, because it's through the slow exhalation that you actually hit these vagal triggers with your breath, which causes this effect to occur where your entire body slows down into a state of safety. Focusing on the inhalation can be counterproductive. You might actually kind of do something closer to hyperventilation, which is sort of the opposite of what we're talking about. But, you know, slow breathing, particularly slow exhalations Will slow down your entire body by by kind of getting in the middle of your autonomic nervous system and causing the whole thing to slow down.
2: The vagal effect on the heart works during exhalation, and during inhalation, you literally lift the vagal break off the heart. And you, as a singer, understand that because singing or playing a wind instrument, uh, you are obligated to exhale slowly and may find those moments of singing or playing the musical instrument, especially comforting and feeling good i used to make those statements when i gave lectures and then people got upset with me because they were string players and keyboard players and they said we breathe the same way they were breathing with the phrases of music that's how they breathe and i was really saying okay you can do that but if you're a singer or a wind instrument player you have no choice and i often say that that i was a clarinetist oh i often attribute my clarinet playing as a, as an adolescent with my survival as an adolescent, that it enabled me to spend those, I would say an hour a day, I was a classical musician, to literally journey through different physiological states of thought and contemplation while practicing.
0: That is so beautiful. I can't think of a better way to end. The clarinet helping save a life (laughs) and helping you, it all connects, you know, It just to what you're doing now, to creativity Thank you. Thank you both for being here and for this work. Everybody, please go get Our Polyvagal World. It is so, so good. It's actually fun to read. It's like just soul affirming and also gives you tools to feel more safe in the world, which we all really need right now. Thank you both.
2: Thank you, Lauren.
0: Thanks for listening. And thanks to my guests, Dr. Stephen Porges and Seth Porges. For more info on them, follow them at Polyvagal Institute and at Seth Porges and visit Dr. Stephen's website, stephenporges.com. You can get their book, Our Polyvagal World, How Safety and Trauma Change Us, wherever good books are found. It is out now and I highly recommend it. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping edit and associate produce this episode. Follow her at Rachel M. Fulton. Thank you to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren Lagrasso and at Unleash Herner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also, tag the guests at Polyvagal Institute and at Seth Porges so they can share as well. My wish for you this week is that you just breathe. Breathe in when you're in a moment of anxiety. And let your nervous system know that you are safe. Whenever you feel anxious or spinning or just overwhelmed, breathe. I know it seems simple. I know it can feel stupid. But I swear to God, it makes such a massive difference. Breathing really can change your life. Okay, I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.